everyone. This is Lorena Morales, and you are listening to the Sassholes Podcast, the only place where you can actually almost be called an asshole without getting offended. Welcome to Sassholes. With a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions, Jamie, Justin, KG, and myself, Pete, are dedicated to helping sales leaders or aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no-bullshit approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Hey, today our guest is Lorena Morales. Lorena Morales is Director of Global Digital Marketing Revenue Operations at JLL. Lorena is a skillful storyteller and relationship builder, and she uses these skills and her approach to both marketing and leadership which have allowed her to grow teams for the past eight years. In the interest of making the most of every minute, Lorena has lived and worked in several countries around the world, as well as earned her master's degree in international marketing and strategic design management, which have served her to understand her customers through a different lens, which is the design thinking and service design. But before we get to Lorena Morales, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Aaron J. and Trent S. Thank you for supporting our content. It's a, it's a real ego boost. And again, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm telling you, each subscribe is magic fairy dust that turns 30 viewers into 3,000. KG. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Torment me now. Arnie. Yeah, wow. I was in Minneapolis uh, over the weekend, and one of the headlines that caught, uh, it's kind of inappropriate, but I'll read it anyway. So there was a, this midget fortune teller killed one of his customers. Yes, and? Mm-hmm. Well, don't you want to know what the headline was? Yeah, what was the headline? There was a small medium at large. <laughs> Leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Hey, we got any shout-outs? Yes, I got some shout-outs. Well, First of all... Ju- Justin! Happy yeah, birthday! Justin. Happy oh, thank birthday. you, Pete. Thank you. Is Happy it your birthday, birthday today? No, it was four, uh, four, a couple of days ago. Four days ago, to be exact, I think. Yeah, and then Lorena, right? Yes, I had a birthday on April 11th, so on Aries... Oh. Uh, Feliz I, 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 think, I, th- I think Lorena should sing happy birthday to me. I just want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it, but in Spanish, and I don't guarantee that. Yeah, oh, that's exactly. Thing. <laughs> I, could, I could do that. I could do that uh, right now if you ask me to. Um, I don't guarantee that you're going to understand a thing, but we can try. Feliz cumpleaños, happy birthday. Um, what, what else? I don't sing because my voice is unfortunately terrible, not even in the shower, but I can tell you, feliz cumpleaños, espero que la pases bomba este año y que esté lleno de sonrisas y mucho amor. Did you understand? What she no. said. When no. you're, when, the only thing is, well, when I say, it, muchos gracias. Almost, almost. Yeah. It works, it works. You know, when you're describing Justin, I think you missed the word uh, pinchy. Pinchy. What is pinchy? I don't know what pinchy is. Nothing. Continue. I know kimchi. Oh, pinchy. 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 That's a different thing. Oh, my God. This show is going to be spicy. Um, Yeah, I don't want to call him. I don't want to call him pinchy. No. He he, he can be my potential friend. It means a, a bad word in Spanish. One of the best ones, if you ask me, honestly. Uh, pinche when you're mad is like pinche 
something. And, uh, what did someone who works in a kitchen doing menial work like peeling potatoes or washing dishes? Sure, yeah, that's what it means. Sure. Like uh, yeah, that's Jay- it Jamie Carney's the pinche of the podcast. <laughs> All right, no. we are we are so off course. KG, how do you know uh, Lorena? How do no, you get her? I know show? Lorena. Oh, I, I'm, Carney, I met Lorena. I met Lorena a couple times um, on a couple calls, and I told her about the Sassholes podcast, and she was exuberant about wanting to be on the Sassholes podcast. I'd never heard of it. She loved the name. So, of course, uh, I asked her to join. She signed up. Uh, but, yeah, we were. she works at JLL, and um, there's a guy, Matt Johnson, that is constantly calling her on our team at People AI. And uh, I think I've been on a couple calls with with her, um, at least two, I know of, maybe more. But yeah, that's how I've gotten more. to know her. And she, she's got a very interesting take. One of the questions about, about data and revenue operations and how she's sort of trying to transform everything over at JLL. All right, start this show. Okay, we're serious starting now. There's Boy, no what a boring stuff. show. Mm-hmm. I got some shout yeah, outs. Yeah, guys. Yeah, let's go, let's you, go. You I got some shout outs. So, uh, so we gave Lorena her belated, you know, happy, uh, happy birthday there and a happy birthday to my buddy, Rob Feinstein. Happy birthday to Dom Panetta. I got, I still got to get out there to Arizona and listen to you do uh, some karaoke and uh, happy birthday to Maddie D. Maddie D I think was at uh, career builder and simply hired way back, uh, way back when, and happy birthday to my, uh, my buddy inside sales pro um, Ralph Barcy up in Northern California. Happy birthday, everybody. Peace oh, out. So Peace out. That's it. Shout-outs for me. Shout-outs for me, Matt Johnson, one year at People AI. Um, Jeff Cole, five years at one span. Buddy of mine, uh, Sarah Bell, uh, just took a new role from Sonar to head of content marketing at Bright Hire. My, uh, my boy, Skip Tramontana, it's his birthday today. And Mike Irwin, three years at Spans. Give them all shout-outs. So are you doing this like from the American Lounge? The United Club, yes. The United wow. Club. Uh, that's you, you can't really get into it in the United Club. American mm-hmm. the Admirals, you can get a little bit more feisty. Mm-hmm. Hey, J- Jason Ferrara, one year at Search Spring. Hey, Ferrara, are you coming back, man? This, this is what the show has become without you. Jerica Vaughn, four years at InTouch. Jeff Ignacio, he got a new gig at head of sales operations at Forthought. John Healy, SVP Sales at SMP Communications. John Frazier, one year at Optimizely. Marquita Haynes, two years at Zoom. Remember her? And Alan Harper, two years at TransUnion. Okay, Carney, how do you know Lorena? So Lorena and I got to know each other through um, People AI and Matt Johnson at People AI, who uh, was brought me in on a couple of calls. I talked to her about the Sassels. She was very excited about the podcast and being on there to talk about what she does and what she's an expert on, which is revenue operations with marketing and data. So I thought we'd bring her on and have her join the call to talk about everything RevOps, I talk about everything marketing ops, talk about everything revenue. So I thought she'd be a great candidate to be brought on. She's very feisty, as we already know. So, so, so Lorena, t- can you give us uh, two minutes on yourself? We're in the elevator, long right up. Uh, how, how'd you get to where you are today? Absolutely. I think 
I think Pete, for me, that question is kind of a tough one because it, it, it has many flavors, right? Like on, on how do I get to the point where I am today? First of all, I think the, the common ingredient there is by putting myself in very uncomfortable positions. Um, I think I have said yes to every single opportunity that, that life has put my way, even if it wasn't the most glamorous one, because now people know me as, as yeah, the director at JLL and this and that. But uh, the reality is that I didn't start my career um, in, this, in this fancy way or this like elegant way, right? Like working for a public traded company, like in a global role. Yeah. I started from scratch. And I think people that come from other countries to, to, to this one, to start a potentially a, a better life, we need a lot of humility to really accept the fact that, that again, that you need to start from, from the ground and from zero. And, and that's something that not everyone is willing to accept. For me, I was already, I, I already had spent a lot of money in formal education. So I came here to do my first master's degree. Um, then a couple of years after I do a, another master's degree. So I was already really well educated with not a really good paying job or not a, not really good, um, opportunities. So I had to say yes to all those things in order to stay in the country and then make myself a really good marketer and a really good grounded marketer because that allowed me to work in almost every single um, area of the demand gen um, engine. So that's how I slowly became a manager. Then I became a director, then a vice president, and then today uh, a director at a public trader company in a, in a global role. So I think that's what makes me the woman that I am today uh, on comfortability if I have to say it and I am really good at it uh, that's why very few things make me shy very few things offend me I don't get offended that easily even though people try to to do it uh, more more times than than I would like to accept but um, I just smile through my way uh, through the rough times and uh, and it's a good smile. You know what I have. So, so after doing two master's degrees, what I want to know is what do you know that other people generally don't know? I think what I know about formal education, regardless of the master's that I did, I mean, one on the technical knowledge is I am really dangerous in design thinking and human-centered design because I paid actual money to, to get myself educated on that. And people are starting to see the value of these methodologies applied to growing teams and to growing strategies, et cetera. So that's one thing. But moreover than, than the specific thing that I study, I think what I understand better than anyone is how to create deeper and meaning, meaning, meaningful relationships. I think people, especially um, with LinkedIn and all these platforms that allow us to connect with pretty much anyone in the world, people have lost that intention on like, if I'm going to talk to someone is because he or she or them is going to make my time valuable as well. I'm going to get something out of that person. And I think that's the way I network. And that's the way I understand uh, people. Like I'm not going to be the, the person that answers to every single cold email because, and I've read this in LinkedIn, like especially from salespeople saying like, I am the person that is going to educate the sales profession by answering every single email. Honestly, I am not that person because my time is valuable. And because the same way that I apply that, I'm, I'm going to answer an email if I see intention in it. So every single thing that I do is with intention. And that's something that I learned from being in formal education. If it was for me, I would be, I was actually going to pursue a PhD, but then the pandemic happened and I didn't do it. But if school gives you something, is the ability to 
to to connect with other like-minded people and you're not going to find that anywhere else so i think that's why i like learning and that's why i like being in rooms with people and that's why i like events and even though i'm an introvert surprise surprise but uh and a, and a heavy introvert but i think those two things are the most important things that my education has gave, has given to me you know it's interesting uh you, i'm here in, in los angeles uh lorena and the usc business school is like top 20 top 25 in the you know in the world and many of the people that i know that have come out of that mba program that business school have said that the number one thing that they got out of it was their network yep. period like the learning was sort of secondary to the to the <laughs> network there is that a, is which, that a good thing well, you know, I, I, I think I think it's pretty effing expensive, Justin. That's yeah. that's for sure. But you know, that's I, I think expensive asked, way to make friends. Yeah, it, but, but guess what? But these are different friends, though, Justin. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That, these are different friends that are somewhat like-minded and also fairly affluent, and, yeah. and can help you help you get ahead. Almost expensive because as LinkedIn. To you, to your point, Kevin. I love that you mentioned that because. It's not only about doing friendships or people that are close to you. Like then you need to learn how to capitalize on that network, right? Like your network is as important as it is. If you know how to get advantage of that, if you know how to ask people for, for a hand when you need it, most people, they just have the network there. Like and they don't do anything about it. They just have their connections there without even moving them. I am the person that people know who I am. Because either I have helped them or, or, or they have helped me in the past. So you need to know how to capitalize that network and how to move it effectively. Like it's not just something that you, that someone gives to you. It's not inherited. It's nothing like that. Like it's something that you build from scratch. So that's the value of a network and you need to understand it and you need to work towards it. I've met a lot of stupid MBAs. Let me just, let me just say. Oh, yeah. and, and, they stu- and they stuff them in product. And they're, 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 they're the product people and, and they're, a lot of them are idiots. They're just idiots. And so, 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 you know, I think Justin is sort of subtly touching on a point. It's like, you know, it doesn't do, it doesn't do, it's, you gotta have the right head on there. It's not a silver bullet. It's, it's important, but it's not a silver bullet. Uh, Justin, you want to expand on that? Cause I, I feel you, man. No, I think, I think that, that, uh, that these kinds of, uh, degrees, as opposed to say engineering degrees or, or yeah. medical degrees, attract two 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 groups of people. It it attracts people who are desperate for the education, and it attracts people who are desperate for the rubber stamp. Um, so I think the audience is bifurcated, and I don't think it's fair to I don't think it's fair to assume that it's one group. I think there are two distinct groups. But there's, there's definitely a problem with MBAs who who uh, get spit out of these business schools and gum up organizations, mm-hmm. you know, standing, you know, prevent innovation. Um, yeah. I think there's but, another but, group. There's one that there's, there's yeah, people that pay for it and people that have the company pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a huge distinction. Yeah. yeah. But Lorena, Lorena, <laughs> you've, you've capitalized on it and that, and that's fantastic. And you've taken your career into lots of different levels. And, and, you know, one of the things when I was looking at your background, you know, your rev ops and marketing, and you've had somewhat of a diverse background. And I think that having an MBA, you've capitalized on your MBA because it's allowed you to think through different scenarios. It seems like you, you, you can be a, a utility, a utilitarian type of person. And I heard you talk about the fact that you love rev ops. You love talking about RevOps. Why, why do you love talking about RevOps? 
Yes. Well, first of all, uh, clarifying, I didn't do an MBA because I do not believe in MBAs. I believe in very specific programs that are going to teach you a specific um, skill sets. So my masters were masters in science, both of them. And so with that is like, I think there's a third group of people that just like teachers, right? They do it for the love of doing it because know that you're never going to get the investment back. And I was lucky enough that I was supported by scholarships and my family and this and that. So I, I don't have the owning money piece of, of that that can really haunt people 30 years or 40 years later without really seeing the, the, the return on investment. Plus, people don't know how to sell themselves. And that's a reality. So if you have an MBA or five or seven and you don't know how to sell yourself, you're lost. That's it. Yeah. But RevOps. RevOps. Why I love RevOps? I think I have to be honest and admit that it was an inherited love. It's not something that I that I found or it's not something that, that I cross paths with. My previous manager um, truly believed in it. And he was kind of the first ones that started to talk about it. And I drank the champagne, right? And, and he <clears> hired <throat> me to open the RevOps as a service category, which we did back then, back in 2016. Um, I got to see the, the execution of RevOps due to the nature of the business at many, many levels. So it was, I think it was one of those things that was meant to be because the more that I saw it implemented, because there's a lot of tools right now that, that they call themselves revenue operations platforms or revenue operations solutions, et cetera. There's very few people doing the actual job and helping you transition from legacy operations to revenue operations. I was lucky enough to be the vice president for, of marketing for a company that was doing the work for every other other SaaS company in the space and really big names with really, really hairy problems. And you mean, so go, when you I, mean go nimbly? Yes, yes. We just true. had Jen on the show. I know, she, she's great. But, uh, but uh, this company, what allowed me to do was to not only grow as a revenue operations executive to really understand the methodology, but it, it, it truly helped me to how does a methodology becomes a function in a company? That's not easy. That's not easy. And it's probably the hardest work that you're ever going to do because people, because you need to get the buy-in, you need to get the systems, you need to get the resources, you, you need to get the strategic leader, et cetera, et cetera. So when it truly becomes a function in a company, that's when I absolutely fell, fell in love. Like that's when I said, this is a real thing. So and what's the, I, I haven't worked in a, big business and most of our clients are sort of mid, mid-sized companies. What is the specific problem that RevOps solves? There's a lot. There's a lot, Justin. It's not, it's not a, a one single thing that it solves, but uh, it solves, for example, leakage in revenue across the, the, the entire customer journey. Um, that's one of the biggest ones. Like if you are leaking revenue, um, we are going to find it right away. What else does it solve? The lack of alignment between the systems and, and uh, the systems talking between each other because we get super excited. And I, and I say we, because I've fallen into the trap of like just buying software because it sounds super shiny and super fun and super everything. I was spoiled because yeah, again, given the nature of, of my previous business, we needed to learn all the tools in order to be effective in consulting. But uh, today I am way more... Uh, this word is going to keep keep coming to, to this conversation, but I'm very more intentional about the things that we actually buy 
because you don't need every single tool, tool, tool stack in every single tool in your tool stack. And that's something really, really hard to understand. The third thing that it helps with marketing and sales alignment, it still happens. I know in the SaaS space, it's already a cliche. With public traded companies, you have no idea the, the huge silos that you see, especially mm -hmm. in a global role where people have different budgets. You probably, right now we have different, different CMOs. And me, I am in charge of aligning everyone to the same ah. North Star. So does so RevOps the, own the sales and the sales and marketing tech stack? Ideally, you have someone in RevOps that owns that tool stack. Today, I don't own it, but I work um, on the side with our with the person that does. So it sounds so like what, they sounds like it should own it, and it sounds like uh -huh. RevOps should contain a bunch of as well as it some should. tools, a bunch of analysts. Oh, it yes. should absolutely. Yeah. My okay. my second hire was actually an analyst because I needed to. Un that's that's my weakness, right? Or my not so strong suit. Like I I am I'm, I don't crack in front of a Salesforce dashboard, but I am not the one that goes into the system and finds the the trends or the insights. So my one of my first hires at JLL was precisely an an, an analyst that came from the RevOps world who could help me understand and make sense of all the information that we had. Um, so, yeah, but you're absolutely right, uh, Justin. They should own it. Yes. When, when do you consider using uh, outsourcing like um, GoNimbly and Rev Partners? When do you keep it in-house and when do you go outside Oof. of house? Oof, that's another hot topic. I, I actually don't believe that you should start investing, and, and people are going to kill me because I come from that world, but I don't think you should go right after the gate to for help in consultants or like outsource partners because and i saw a recent study by i don't i don't recall who but that they are they were stating that you should invest in revenue operations um in the 5 to 20 million range uh of revenue of arr i kind of agree because it's a fair it's a fair measurement to say like this is to pinpoint when do you need revenue operations when do you need consultants or outsourced um, help? When you already have the person that is the leader. So what am I, what, 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 let me kind of dissect this a little bit. I think you, you shouldn't hire outsourced resources until you are ready for it because it's exactly what I am currently seeing at JLL. I am making sure to be myself, the strategic resource that that have all the short and long-term goals aligned with the customer journey first and then with other stakeholders in the business. Only then and only then is when you can start to bring the extra help. Because if you don't have a revenue operations leader in, on top and then you start building your team around that, what you can do is most likely you're going to create confusion and most likely uh, people are not going to know how to prioritize the important work. And so you need someone that looks at the why of things. Like, why are we building these dashboards in Salesforce? Why are we doing this um, Eloqua integration with whatever tool? Why are we doing, why are we implementing Drift? Why are we implementing, so I am shouting out to all the tools that I love and, I, and, and that I use. But uh, a lot of people, a lot of times when people look for, for revenue operations people, we're starting to see that they look for people that have backgrounds either in marketing ops or in sales ops. 
And the thing that happens with marketing ops is like they are so focused on analyzing the the the, the analytic part of marketing that they lose visibility of like of what's next, what's coming next. They are seeing the trees instead of the forest. And then with sales ops, their life is Salesforce or any CRM because it's so complex. The complexity of personalizing your CRM is so high that probably you're also not gonna you're not gonna get the strategic thing that you are looking for in in these two realms um so that would be my advice like yeah you can be in the five or the seven million or the 15 but what you need to look at is what type of problems i am trying to solve and what are the root causes because for example at jll today please don't get surprised but we have 86 crm instances today everyone is stating that that's a problem that's not the problem. That's a consequence. The root of the problem is probably what? That you didn't align with the business before, that you didn't align with the customer before, that you grew so fast. Those are the root problems. Those are the things that you need to be working on. Not, not the fact that you have 86 CRMs. And I have had these conversations with the, with the main stakeholders and they agree. So, so I think, I think that's, that's my answer, if, if that makes sense. You are, you're right. If there were if there were 86 instances of the same basic set of business processes, somebody would have solved the technology problem years ago. Right. Right. So to recap your, what you just said, though, is that you, you should hire the leader and then let that leader decide what pieces of the overall puzzle they should outsource and what yeah. pieces they should keep inside. But you need the strategic leader over the top. So which I 100% agree with. I don't think you can outsource strategy ever at your company. Absolutely, Jamie. For me, it was when when they hired me, it was like, Lorena, you're going to be in charge of APAC, EMEA, Americas, and uh, and you need like a global vision of, of the eight regions that create more revenue. And then surprise, surprise, I didn't have eyes in EMEA. And then I was waking up at crazy hours to try to be those eyes. So even before I hired my analyst, I hired someone in EMEA that was that was that is functioning right now as a director of revenue operations. So where, where I can kind of expand my arms and then on and only then, okay, let's bring the, the analyst yeah. and let's bring probably I, a consultancy. I think you can outsource strategy, but only the strategy person can outsource and discuss strategy with another consulting firm. But yeah. to actually implement the strategy, you need someone to own that whole process. Yep. Well, yep. you know, I, I have to, you know, I'm dealing with early stage clients as customers right now. And the problem that they face, and again, this is, I'd love to hear what everybody says, especially Justin too. Uh, um, you hire the strategic person as one of your first hires in operations. Now I heard you, Lorena, you said you don't need RevOps until you get to, you know, 20 million or whatever you said. Okay. But like, I'm dealing with people that have 3 million, 5 million, 10 million of ARR and their, their rev ops and sales operations is either disjointed. It's like finance handles some and, and, uh, and sales management handles, you know, some others. And, uh, you know, the, the one person who does, you know, analytics and reporting handles a piece. So it's this disjointed. Okay. Then they go, you know what, we need to hire somebody. So now what they're looking to hire, again, we're talking 3 million of ARR to 10 million. They're trying to find the one person that can be both strategic and be a great systems thinker like you, but then also grind in HubSpot and like configure the tool and, and like, you know, do the dashboards and, oh, don't forget to, you know, don't run out of minutes in HubSpot and stuff. It's ex extremely tactical. And, and so 
the debate that I'd love to pose is how do you find that one person that can be both strategic and tactical? Um, you know, and when you're saying don't bother with RevOps till later stage or hire the person inside, but that person becomes useless if they're just like, well, yeah, here's what you need to do, but I can't do it. Are, are you following me? Like what the debate is? Yeah, Kevin, I, uh, here's the thing and here's the problem. When you find that unicorn that can be that can be doing both strategic and tactical, most likely that person won't won't want to to do the tactical work anymore. Exactly. Because it's because there's a reason why they are already on the strategic side, right? Like they grew their career. So why would you put them to clean dashboards and to kind of run reports and to kind of like that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't make sense to try to look for this person as your first hire to do both the strategic and the tactical. When I was interviewing for, for my new role, people kept asking me that. And I was like, sweetie, I can, I can do the tactical if you ask me to. I'll, I'll, I'll roll my sleeves and I'll jump right into it. Am I going to be happy? Not anymore, because I already, I already tasted the flavors of glory. Like, I'm already in the strategic side. Why would I go back to, to the things that I... In the first place, I don't even know if I enjoyed that much being a tactical well, there, resource. Well, well, there you go. They, they're, they're a shit show when it comes to RevOps at 3 million to 10 million. And so it, you, it's hard to find the strategic person that can also be tactical. So are you saying to hire a tactical person who's, who's sort of the leader, but they don't have leadership skills? Are you saying now backtracking and saying maybe we should consider outsourced RevOps at that point in time because it's such a disaster at 3 million to 10 million? That that's that that's where I this debate is fantastic because the, pro- what I'm the, pro- saying, the problem, Kevin, is they have cancer and you're trying to solve a hair loss problem. What, what the thing I'm is, if you if you that, have a three million dollar business and you have the kind of dysfunction that you described, you have a you have an organization design problem, and the problem is that division of labor of any kind, whether it's happening at the individual level or whether it's happening at the functional level, like we're discussing. DevOps. So what we're saying is we're going to carve off a chunk of the business and have a team working on that chunk of the business. You need a really robust organizational design in order to be able to apply a division of labor at the individual level, let alone the functional level. So the fact that you have a business that's doing three of three to $5 million that has these problems in the first place means there's a fundamental organizational design problem that needs to be addressed before the organization is going to be robust enough to say, hey, we're going to carve off this whole new function. And if you, my, my point is like, if you are at 3 million, I mean, at 5 million, according to this article, you could st- start implementing RevOps. If you're at three or one or seed funding or whatever it is, and, you're, and, you, and you, wanna, you wanna have this type of alignment and, and this type of um, sophistication around revenue operations, one thing, let, let's, let's, let's call things as, as they are. Let's start there. Like one thing is, thinking about revenue operations and another one is executing on revenue operations so those two things are very different you kind of start to think about revenue operations even if you're seed funding you kind of start to think like you know what let me seed marketing and sales together let, let me start there let me start them having marketing having prospecting calls let me have sales doing some some testing in, in the content for example that is revenue operations and you don't need a leader to do that you just need to, to your team to be willing to be multi multi-purpose well the so who should own is- that though at, at at that level so i this is Lorena, perfect so if we're because remember many of our customers maybe so our listeners are are like 
you know, early stage technology companies, they are, they are, you know, much like what you were dealing with at Go Nimbly, you know, these early, earlier stage, stage companies and sometimes larger, but, um, so what does the organization design need to look like? If you're not going to go for a full-on RevOps team, which it's, there's limited resources, there's 30 people in the company, they just raised seed round funding. What should that org look like? Who owns RevOps? Doesn't matter. Like this obsession on like, there's one title that should own revenue operations is crazy to me. Like people keep debating like, no, it's the COO. No, it's the CEO. No, it's the CRO. For God's sake. I don't care who it is. It's a person that understands revenue operations and that understands the business holistically. If that's your CEO because you're really early stage, go for it. If you can't afford to have a CRO, a, a real CRO, it, it has to go to the CRO, yes or yes. Like, let's just start using our, our, our common sense, right? Like, let's not obsess about People, people are wanting and they are so thirsty about best, best practices about revenue operations. Reality is that they don't exist because it's such a new uh, methodology and it's such a mm-hmm. new function that everyone is applying their own flavors to their own instances. So, for example, for me, I, I changed from earth to from heaven to, to, to earth when I changed to, to JLL. What I knew about revenue operations, I had to unlearn it and then relearn mm-hmm. some new things in order to apply them. Mm-hmm. Do I do I call myself still a revenue operations executive? Hell yes. Mm-hmm. Hell yes. It's just that I am doing things differently. Yeah, if if you've got 20 people, that's almost that's as many people as you could have fit in fit around a large boardroom table. Like what I'm curious about, um, Kevin, is a business that small, the the, you, you would hope that if you had all of the operators of the business sitting in a room together, solving problems, you would have a really smoothly operating value generating system. And, and obviously, as you scale up from 3 million to 30 million, you're going to run into scalability problems. But the question is going to, the, the situation should be, we have this smoothly operating system it's a beautiful thing because we all sit in the same room and we communicate with one another we built it it's perfect but it won't scale and then you need RevOps and you need a bunch of other things to scale it but what you see with small businesses is is it's it's a mess already and they're doing three million in revenue and they're looking around for software to solve the, the 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 problems these problems are organizational design problems that shouldn't exist yeah, and once you buy that software, you don't get rid of it. You end no, up with a department of people trying to operate the software that was yeah. that was purchased to try and solve problems that shouldn't have existed in the first place. You have, you, have le- you have legacy issues that are happening because the CRO only lasts a year and a half. So you come in and you're you're dealing with these things from the last guy. You're going to get a year and a half to try and fix it, then you're gone. How do we get these CROs to last long? Make make it to two years. Can we get them to two years, guys? What's, well, what's it's also, but it is the growth. Like at, when you're in the smaller stages of a company, you're customizing your sales process for that sales process when you're 20 people, which is not scalable for 100 people. Correct. And therefore everything breaks. So even if you, even if that CRO stays there, Everything breaks because they start thinking in the minutia and not scale on the onset. They think exactly. about this would be great to add these caveats or these portions to the CRM tool or this. And next thing you know, it becomes, you know, just too cumbersome of a tool. 
it, it's like a really good basketball coach at a small school. You get them going and then they split and the team's crap again. You know, it's, it's really hard to get over that hump. Why aren't these CROs sticking around longer? That's all. It's, uh, you get a VP in sales the last 20 years, but you can't get a CRO to last a couple of years. Is it the position itself or, you know, it was created only what less than 10 years ago. Now do we even need it anymore? I, I'm just wondering. Just a guy asking a question. And I love that question because I, I've seen both exactly. And I, and I actually asked myself the same thing, like why BP of sales line lasts for so long? And then I think the, the answer is the ambiguity around the CRO and the amount of responsibility, because now everyone sees revenue operations as the solution for every single problem, right? Now imagine being the CRO, the, the, the one that actually reports to the board and, and to the CEO. Hell, that's a lot of pressure and the ambiguity on the role since it's exactly what I was saying. There is no someone that has done it before that can come and teach you. And if there is, there's a couple of them out there that are really, really good at what they are doing. Um, one of them, really good friends of mine. And, uh, and what I was talking to him is like, your job is really freaking hard. People prefer to go back to sales or to go back to some other whatever background they decided to, to hire for. So, yeah. Is that true that there's a high turnover in RevOps? Not in RevOps, for, but for this, yeah. actually, it's the opposite. Now people are jumping more and more into RevOps. But for the CRO, there's, there's a high uh, churn. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. Oh, okay. The CRO, if you, we engineer uh, Pete's question. The CRO um, might be only 18 months, but why is there always a line outside the door when a CRO job is available? It's desirable for some reason, mainly because when it's a golden hand, a parachute problem. Eighteen months, they get they get pushed okay. out. So what functions are being what functions are being put under the CRO? I'm assuming sales and marketing. Sometimes oh, it's what, usually sales. And what marketing. about new product development? Product product generally stays well. Sometimes right. sometimes it can go, but product generally stays under marketing. Well, hang on. If marketing's under the CRO. No, I see product staying with technology, but product marketing <laughs> stays under marketing, which helps drive product. Okay. I don't, it's kind of confusing. Because the, pro the problem I see is how can, you be a how can you be a CRO if you don't have control over product? That's, That's a good a question. Great question. I mean, like, that, it's like being it, a chef it, and you can't buy your own groceries. Believe me, well, this is just, what happens. Just, they, all point, they point at each other, just like they used to point marketing, just point at sales. Now, I think in that situation, if the CRO oversees marketing, they point at product as the reason. Yeah, if you went into a company that was that was led by a product person like Airbnb, for example, would Airbnb split out CRO as a separate role and if so would would product answer to revenue or would revenue answer to product i would think airbnb would be a product focused company a product tech company whereas, mm -hmm. a product because they're, yeah. they're more of a b2c you don't really have a cro at a b2c you have a cro more than a b2b but that's just my take well, we've but, come uh, from both any, any company that any company a company that isn't a product-led company scares me in this day and age like how do you, how do you stay alive if you're not a product-led company? I agree. Yeah. We've come from both kinds. We've seen where it's been a sales-led company. Hey, oh, the customers want this, so we want all these mm -hmm. customizations. 
mm-hmm. and then the company loses focus and it goes to crap mm-hmm. and uh and then you'd have the if you have a really good product then the salespeople shouldn't have to be that good yeah yep. agreed yep. They should the problem just is they the, deteriorate over time both of them they should yeah. just be able to tell yeah. the story reasonably effectively right, yeah right 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 so B2B marketing, what do you got to do nowadays to get your uh, name out there? Do you have to get pretty good on YouTube, Lorena? <laughs> <laughs> or a TikTok? I don't, I don't know about those two. Uh, I'm personally out of those uh, In lines. B2B? It's obsessed. In B2B, yeah. Um, I, think, I think people are, are studying again, obsessing about personal brands, right? What I would say is, it's not really that. Like what I would say is I think investing in personal and friends legacies, which is not, it's not, it's not the same as a brand. Um, and why do I say this? Because not everyone can create a brand and not everyone should be doing it. Like the days where like everyone can say just anything that is in their brains really annoys me. Like that idea that just anyone can, can jump into LinkedIn and then they believe that posting every single day is going to create them their brand probably David Gerhardt said that at some point and then people believed it. Fine. But what I think is make sure instead of that, that people know you are a respectable human being. And why do I say friends? Because people relate you to the people that you hang out with the most. And at some degree, I also think that you, that, that we become pieces of the people that surrounds us. So more than brands, make sure to build a legacy. Make sure that if someone gets to know you, you have a good, um, a good, a good, a good impression on them, and and they have a, a good taste in their mouths after knowing you. The brands, the personal brands, those are going to ex- extinguish at, at some point because there's just, a, a, I don't think there's enough room for everyone to have their own brand anymore so that's my talking about brands if we look at successful b2b growth businesses in the last few years i'm thinking of aws i'm thinking of dell Uh personal brands had nothing to do with the growth of those b2b why why is that the first what why do we start with personal brands when we're talking about growth with b2b because the, the question was like, what, what marketing professionals in B2B should be doing? And when you think about um, companies like Drift, for example, the entire branding around the, the, the company was around their people. And each one of the stakeholders had their own brand. Who is so this? that's Drift. Drift. Um, so that's an, a, a successful example of a company that they leverage personal brands in order to make the business propel. Great example and great, uh, uh, great minds behind that. If that's the rule, I don't think so. I think to your point on like how Amazon build the brand, they build it based on the product and based on the services. Um, so I think that's, that's why I answered the, the way that I answered that. Yeah. I don't believe people should be trying to, or not everyone. Like there are some people that people want to follow just naturally. Yes. Uh, um, there, there's people that shouldn't even be trying because one is time consuming. And second, it's kind of, it's, it's to the point that it's a little bit annoying to be honest. Uh, but that's my personal opinion. I, I know people are going to disagree with this one because branding is an entire thing for this year. Um, but I, I don't believe branding for the sake of brand. Like I don't no, believe it. I would question if you're a B2B company, why would you even care about building a brand? It should be a 
secondary consequence of building a good business. I mean, mm. I, I wonder how much effort Snowflake, for example, uh, dedicated to brand building. My guess is roughly... Well, same, same thing. Daniel Day, who is the one that scaled the ABM program at, at, at Snowflake, he's the, one, the, 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 the first one that scaled to 1,500 accounts, something like that. He had a personal brand, right? And people related Snowflake to this guy, and he he he's a super good friend of mine. And at some point, he was called Mister ABM. So mm. that's that's a play where where like B two B marketing professionals are starting to say like, should I invest in my brand and then connect that to my company? I don't know. I don't know. My own perspective is that enough is enough, and everyone is trying to do it in LinkedIn. I don't think it's as effective as it was uh, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. I think you should be focusing as a B2B uh, marketing professional in legacy, in legacy, absolutely. Ah, we agree. You're saying, you're saying forget about tech talk, just focus on building a business and selling stuff. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, you, you can I say see, that, sure. You see where Justin falls. See, Pete, it's not all about social media, Pete. <laughs> Get off your dances and shit on TikTok. <laughs> well, I, th- I think, I mean, uh, who's that guy? Gary Vaynerchuk? Yeah. You know, it, it, the, Gary V. Yeah, he's proven. I mean, wine, t- I used to watch that show, Wine Library TV, I think it was called. He's proven that that if you're a personal celebrity or if you have the ability to build personal celebrity, you can drag along a reasonable sized business behind you. But that's a hell of an if. I mean, uh, that's a big bet, right? Yeah, that's, it's a, a, big that's a big bet. I know that HubSpot has their pool builder guy who's more of a celebrity today as a result of HubSpot than a pool builder. Um, but that's these are like uh, outliers, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. a that's a dangerous growth strategy if you're a, if you're a B2B uh, business. Hey, we got My some other opinion. questions here. I know like one of the questions like everything that you've been saying is great. I think you know you're you've got a huge background. Uh, but one of the things like you're a mentor at Girls Who Sell. Could you like maybe tell us a little bit about that and about our audience? Yeah, it's part of the things that I go and do on the side because I think uh, we should be rounded human beings, right? Like you shouldn't be spending all the time in your job because that's not going to benefit anyone, not even your company. And so Heidi Salomon, um, who is a founder of Girls Who Sell, reached out to me and told me like, hey, I find your background really interesting. My first reaction was like, this is Girls Who Sell. I don't, like I kind of, everyone says like everyone is in sales, right? Like from Daniel Pink. Um, and I and I do believe that at, at a certain extent, but my reaction was like I don't, don't have a professional kind of training in sales. Am I going to be valuable to these girls? And it's um, around I think twenty four or thirty six students in Portland, Oregon, which I have two of them uh, that I am mentoring personally on finding their way into into a revenue career like it, it can be marketing it can it can be sales so that's when i accepted because she told me like no no your background is absolutely fantastic like you are one of the few ones that actually understand sales but that has been trained officially in marketing uh but you've been in, in positions that are kind of weird and i was like yeah <laughs> you, you can say that uh my positions have been weird and so it's it's very fulfilling. I I, I mentor them every, once a week, so I spend time separately with with each one of them. And one of them is actually an, an influencer, which kind of 
hits me in the head. I was like, oh, my sweet Lord. And now I love her to death because she is actually teaching me a, a, a thing or two. And so this is a beauty about mentoring. Like not, not always is the, the mentor showing the mentee stuff. Sometimes it's a mentee showing us how to do things better, how to, to put our, our messaging in place, how to even kind of keep a fresh mind and a fresh thinking. So it's been great. It's been great. I just started that one um, a couple of months ago. And I think I want to keep doing more and more of that. So yes, that's Girls Who Sell. That's interesting. I know, and I, I, we're coming up on time, but I know when we've talked in the past, um, you stated that growth and revenue and all that is focused on data. And I think this is a big problem. What data? In your current role, like a JLL, what's the most important data? How do you tend to capture it? Because I think a lot of people say data, 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 but they don't know what data and then they don't know how to get it. They just say it and it's lip service. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, Jamie, it was kind of a wild change of cards there because I came from from focusing on conversion rates and value of the accounts in certain accounts, you can call it an EVM program. So I went from that data, those types of, of, of data points, all the way to, wait a minute, but our systems don't even talk to each other. <laughs> like we don't have a definition of what's an MQL uh, globally. So today I have, I have, for you to know, I have low visibility after SAL. So my priority right now in terms of data is to find SQL dates among with, for example, done deals per region and hopefully revenue. So that's the type of data that I care about right now. I also care a lot, a lot, a lot at JLL about historical close one or close lost opportunities. Why? Because I want to implement forecasting as part of revenue operations, negative and positive forecasting. So negative, why are we losing deals? Why are we losing RFPs? Can we see those as trends in the last five years, six years, and the good thing at, for being an, at an organization, at a global organization, is that you can actually go all the way, like 20 years, 15 years. Um, not all the information is going to be available in the CRM, of course, because 20 years ago, probably they were not even using CRM. But some information is available with, with, uh, with finance, for example. So I think I, in order to, to look for those specific data points, I am going to be able to understand better the current state of the business and then know which accounts are going to close when, uh, which is something super, super valuable that RevOps also fixes from different biggest, sites. One, one of the data points you said there, the biggest uh, one I always have problems with is close one and close lost because no rep ever loses an account. They just move it. <laughs> and uh -huh. and you need to have the right mentality to lose an account because it gives the company insights. But if you look at every deal that gets lost, it's usually delayed nine months to 12 months before it's finally discovered. And and the, and the sales leader says, lose that account. That's not a real account that's been sitting <laughs> yeah, out there forever. Yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but therefore the close loss stuff just gets lost. It, it yeah. really, everyone says, oh, I've got a winning of 60%, but they're not counting the 30% of losses. <laughs> exactly. They would just remain open and delay. Well, exactly. it's, it's, it's worse than that because most organizations ha don't have an unambiguous definition of opportunity in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, and the evidence of that is you have deals appearing in CRM and then being won immediately thereafter, indicating that th they existed, but they weren't documented previously. And then most organizations have designed stages in such a way that 
that there's no unambiguous objective way to agree on when a stage has progressed, when a deal has progressed from one stage to another. So you've got, there's a whole bunch, the whole thing is a big uncertain mess. So even if you solve the reporting problem, yeah. then you've got the classification problem uh, sitting underneath that, that, that you have to try and resolve. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, reps, the savvier reps like Pete, want to stay off the radar so they're never held accountable to anything until they bring in a deal to win. Yeah, they have a fantastic right? win rate. He's doing, he's doing $10 million they dollar deals. The they appear in CRM the day before they won and he has a 98% win rate. Everyone else has six-month sales cycle. The, 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 the hockey, the hockey stick. The hockey stick where like everything is flat and then whoop, the hockey stick problem. Everyone has it, yes. Magic. Yeah, I say, I say to our clients, like if, you have a, if your salespeople have a win rate of north of 10%, Either that's indicating that your organization can't afford to have a sales force and you should be selling in retail, or it's indicating that everyone's telling each other lies. Because no business that can afford to run a, 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 a traditional sales force has a win rate above 10% if you document sales opportunities correctly. In other words, if you say every time a salesperson pursues a piece of business, we're going to classify that as a sales opportunity and measure it from that point forward. Every business's win rate, if they can afford a sales team, is going to be less than 10%. Amen. I agree. So the minute right. you find someone talking about, oh, we have a 15% win rate, you know that they have shitty data. And you can't <laughs> fix that with, you can't fix that with uh, technology, with better technology. Fire the CRO. No, I would say give the CRO, the CRO needs more, the CRO needs more control, perhaps. I mean, you, you need to say, look, if you're going to have access to sales, if, you, if we're going to give you, access, that's why I think you need to own the stack. You need to say, look, if we're going to give you access to Salesforce, you have to use it properly. Yeah. Need influence as well as the authority. Lorena yeah. Morales, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, guys. Lucky among the guys. It's been wonderful to be here today and talk RevOps, RevOps, RevOps. Um, hope you have a fantastic day, and thank you again for having me. Hopefully thank we you. didn't offend you. <laughs> we, we probably did. If, yeah, if we didn't, we're doing something wrong. The rest right. of the takes a lot. Take a lot. takes a lot to, for that, guys. So no, don't worry about it. Lorena, what's the best way for listeners to learn more about uh, you and uh, JLL? Uh, you can look for me at, at Morales Lorena on LinkedIn. And uh, my Twitter account is Morales Lorena SF. Those are the two accounts where you can find me. And we'll have everything in the podcast notes. All right. What a great show. On behalf of Jamie, Justin, KG, myself, Pete, we thank you for listening and watching. If you like what you heard today, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Each new subscriber is magic fairy dust that turns 30 viewers into 3,000. Once again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Aaron, Jay, and Trent S. for supporting our content. It's a real ego boost. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter and the podcast notes. And you can always buy us a beer again on Patreon or Venmo. We thank you for listening. Cue the music.